everyone, and welcome to Empowering Homeschool Conversations. My name is Peggy Ployer, and I am the host of this weekly broadcast put on by SPED Homeschool, as well as its founder and CEO. We at SPED Homeschool empower families to home educate children with learning challenges. And I encourage you to check out our website at spedhomeschool.com to learn more about our resources and the support that we offer families. And some of the best resources that we have on our website, and I know I say this almost every week, is our partners. And I have another one of the SPED Homeschool partners on the broadcast today, and his name is Timothy Whiney. Thank you for joining us, Timothy. (laughs) It's my pleasure. Yeah. So Timothy is with Spellcode, and I'm going to put up your, your website here so that our viewers can see that while I'm doing a quick introduction. And um, I also want you to know if you're popping on, feel free to share this. Um, if you're watching on YouTube, send somebody an email saying you need to listen to this broadcast live. Um, or if you're on Facebook, um, share it around to some groups and friends, because um, we're going to talk about... Um, now, let me see if I can say this correct. <laughs> phonological awareness, or not awareness, but um, yeah, phonological yeah, okay. awareness and everyday activities that'll increase that. Uh, I didn't have my notes up in front of me. <laughs> but um, so we're going to talk about like pre-reading and, and helping your student with some of those skills. And uh, I know I had no idea what when I first started homeschooling, even what phonics was, let alone phonological awareness. So I'm, I'm hoping to learn a lot here today, um, as well as you. And if you have comments or questions, if you're watching with us live, make sure you put them in the feed so we can make them as part of our conversation. We'd love to do that. That's why we do this live. And um, so so definitely join in on the fun and and do that. So, yeah, as we're getting started, Timothy, I would love for you just to talk uh, a little bit about um, just how you got started and what you do and why you're so passionate about helping kids learn to read. Well, uh, not to start on a downer. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes our stories start with something we're very passionate about because we had a struggle. Yes. So, yeah. Mine was no different. Actually, I had anticipated a struggle because Mm. my son was a toddler living in Portugal. And I wanted to make sure that if I had to teach him English, Mm. uh, if he would be equipped to do that. And so I had sort of started researching on my own. And I stumbled across a book by a lady who's quite controversial. A lot of people really didn't like her because she was hmm. very uh, outspoken, but she made a lot of sense. And it was a hmm. book, Why Our Children Can't Read. Mm. Her name was Diane McGinnis. And later I would take her training, well, not her training, but a training developed by her son and daughter-in-law in London. Huh. And um, of all places, it was, I thought this building looks familiar and it was bothering me. And then the, the woman presenting the class said, just so you know, this is the former Iranian embassy where they had the hostage situation. Oh, wow. In the exact room. Hmm. So anyway, my, um, I felt some bad feng shui there, and it was actually, I was right. Hmm. So I digress. But so I read this book, and she said some very, very uh, uh, shocking things about reading that, 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 made a lot of sense to me and being, mm. having a musical background 
I, it made even more sense to me because I had also read a bit about music and its influence on IQ and academic mm -hmm. achievement. And there's an awful lot of research on the so-called Mozart effect and kids who study music right. better. It was kind of a mystery. And now I actually believe um, I know why uh, music at least partially contributes to academic success. Mm. And has to do with phonological or code or, or, or English sound discrimination, right? So the, the mm. smallest constituents mm -hmm. in English are what we call phonemes. So the word cat oh. has three phonemes in it. Cat. Cat mm -hmm. is not a sound. Cat is a word or one syllable word, more specifically. It has, mm. It's made up of three sounds. So if you think of cat as three Legos, cat, cat. Oh, that's a great well, way to think about it. Yeah. Phonemes are, as it turns out, the same, the part of the brain responsible for distinguishing pitch uh -huh. is actually the same part of the brain responsible for distinguishing between sounds of your native language. So oh, wow. hmm. if you study music, mm -hmm. your ears are pre-trained to distinguish between the subtle differences, especially vowel sounds in your native tongue. Mm. So... Um, I bought their book. It's called Reading Reflex. I read everything. This is before I took the class. I was just in the middle of the ocean in the Azores Islands. And I just bought this book and read it. And again, this is before my son even started school. He was three. But I thought, mm -hmm. I'm going to get a head start on this. And I read yeah. the book. And they had a little test there, a uh, phonological discrimination test. So basically, you take a young child and you ask them to manipulate sounds. So you say things mm -hmm. like, uh, frog. You ask them to say the word frog without the er sound, and they should be able to say fog. Or you mm. say uh, er, ah, uh, what is that? They should be able to glue those together and say frog, even though the sounds, the phonemes are segmented, right? Right. With silence in between. So I gave this test to my son, who was three at the time, mm. and he had a perfect score. Hmm. Now, you're only they only recommend you give this test to kids over five. Mm. So here he is two years ahead of his peers, perfect score, absolutely perfect phonemic discrimination. And I actually attribute that to being bilingual. So he was processing. Oh, so he was, the yeah, of all the sounds. Mm -hmm. So he was actually more finely discriminating. Now, maybe there was some music benefit because I was teaching and playing music at the time and maybe hmm. some struggle with that. Who knows? Maybe vicariously. He wasn't studying music, but, <laughs> right. uh, but I was teaching a, the violin in a music conservatory and playing in a chamber orchestra. So I also, um, I drew the connection between the, hmm. the musical um, ear training right. and the phonological ear training. And I actually set up hmm. a, um, I set up an ear training laboratory in a conservatory. So I put in a proposal for computers and the software, and we actually had a structured progressive ear training. And, and that, um, there's you can, basic ear training is you play a note on the piano, and then you play a note above it, and you're supposed to know that interval. What is that? Hmm. Is that a major third, a minor third, a, a sixth, a seventh, whatever, an octave? It turns out that if you always play the low, if the low note is always the same note and the upper note varies, that's easier than if they both float. We call that a floating tonic. 
So if you move the low note, that's harder. Mm. Well, there's, a, there's an analog to that in, in, in reading. Really? And that is, that is the use of tongue twisters. Mm. So it turns out that if you work with kids with, where the first letter, the consonant of each word is the same, then when they form the different vowel sounds following the first consonant, yes. their mouth is always in the same referent position. So, so Peter Piper picked sounds and is different for the child to produce than Cedar, Liker, Nicked, right? Because the first, the shape of the mouth is right. not the same. Mm. So, so that's how tongue twisters became incorporated into my intervention. I realized that uh, it's too hard for kids to distinguish these vowel sounds and worry about the consonant because the mouth has to come from a different position. Right. So you're always that going back to that square confluence. one. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a strange confluence and connection of music ideas, the science behind the brain and how it processes sounds mm-hmm. and trying to keep things simple and easy for the early reader. So that was sort of, in a nutshell, it gives you a sense of why I looked into phonetics in the first place because I had this English-speaking toddler that I wanted to make sure <laughs> learn English and my musical background. So it was just sort of a strange confluence of events. And then mm. later that became incorporated into my teaching when I started teaching elementary school for, for the U.S. military. Yeah, yeah. That's that's fascinating. I have never heard that before. That, and it, But it makes so much sense when you say it. So so thank you for, for diving into that and, and sharing just um, what, what you learned as you were starting to, to research that. Um, so phonological awareness, what what actually is it, you know, how it would be defined? And yeah. then how does it affect reading and learning? Yeah, well, phonological awareness is really just the recognition that words are made up of these discrete sounds. Now, mm. that's easier said than, I mean, that's sort of, it's almost tried to say it. Of course, hmm. kids are phonologically aware because if they weren't, they couldn't talk, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. how was your day at school, John? It was fun. I played with Billy. You know, if the kid can talk, they already know all the sounds of English. Mm. Knowing the sounds of English and reproducing them is turns out to be quite natural. Kids talk. Yeah, they uh, mimic. Yeah. <laughs> don't roll out of bed reading, however. And the reason mm. for that is, as I said earlier, when a child learns the word cat, it goes by so fast, they just learn cat. They just, uh, it's cat, yeah. cat is mm-hmm. cat, cat is, they don't know it's three sounds. They just know it's cat. Mm. In fact, if you ask first or second graders, typically, how many sounds are in the word cat? And if they haven't been uh, consciously taught mm-hmm. uh, these methods, they'll say one. Mm. No, that's a syllable. How many sounds are in the word one? And you can just do that all day. Uh-huh. So I did with my students actually is especially the ones that were I knew were struggling. I gave informal I, the test I gave my son, I gave them. I didn't okay. say we're gonna test you now. How many sounds are the word cat? Mm-hmm. I would just play games with them to find and, right. and in five minutes in a class of twenty kids I knew it was who. I mean I didn't even mm. need to set them aside. I could just do it in a group. But basically, um, if a child uh, has problems distinguishing between the the spellings, basically, of the sounds of a word that, would, that we represent as spelling. Every sound mm. of a word has that spelling, right? Right. So when the word cat 
the sound that happens to be spelled with a C and A and so on. But, you know, unless you misspell like Kit Kat, right? We have, we can mm. misspell a word too. But, right. but each word has so many sounds in it and each sound has to have a spelling. So mm-hmm. what I did with my uh, second graders was I would record them saying monosyllabic words, cat, frog, what have you. And then I would, using a special audio editing software, I would slow it down so they could hear their, their oh, voice their own without voice. changing the pitch. Mm-hmm. Any pitch, and I would insert a little bit of silence, maybe half a second of silence between the mm. So they would hear themselves say, and it was their voice. Right. And that was quite, quite a revelation for them. Wow, cat really does have three sounds in it. Mm. Now, wouldn't you like to know how, how that works? Wouldn't you like to be able to write that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and from that, once they become, once they're aware that Eng- that written English is coded speech, literally mm. what it is it's what comes out of our mouth put on paper and they're off and running but they have mm. to first un, the non-negotiable prerequisite of reading is that a you recognize that words are made up of these smaller constituents and that right. b they, they they have spellings associated with them mm. so that's that in a nutshell that's sort of like the definition of uh of writing, right? When you write, a, let me give you my definition of reading okay. and writing. So, so, yeah. so I don't, so you don't confuse me with others. When I say writing, this is what I actually mean. I say that when you write a word, there's really only two things that go on. First, in your mind's ear, you imagine how many sounds that word has in it. So if I mm-hmm. go to, I mean, this happens quickly, but if you slow down the mental process, this is really what's going on. So let's take the word frog, since that's sort of our word of the day, frog. So before I even think about spelling, I have to count the sounds. Mm. If I don't count the sounds, then I'm I'm dead before I begin. I can't, I have to know that frog has four sounds in it. Then I decide how to spell how to spell er, how to spell ah, uh, how to spell good. It's, mm. it's so as you can see, you can't take prenatal vitamins after the baby's born. It's, right. it's, a, it's a nonsense, right? <laughs> Similarly, you can't spell with my definition of spelling, which, by the way, is the only correct one, because <laughs> it, uh, spelling is a nonsense unless you know how many sounds there are, which you are deciding how to spell. Right. Now, let me prove that to you. I have an example here. Very okay. low-tech example. If I wrote this down just moments ago. Let's look at the word cough and the word though. I, I love this example. I don't know mm-hmm. if this will show up. Can you see this? Yep, you've got to bring it just a little bit closer, and I think we saw it. So, yeah, there, there we okay. go. Focus. So here we have two words. They both have O-U-G-H in them. Mm. However, the word cough is a three-sound word, and the word though only has two sounds. So how is a child supposed to make sense of this? Mm, they see these yeah. four letters together. And well, 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 hang on a minute. So now we're back to reading. So put, put writing aside. So in a re- if a child reads, it's sort of, it's not the same process. Writing, I explained to you, you count the sounds, and mm-hmm. then you decide how to spell them. But you have to learn to read in order to write or to spell. So let's, re- let's reverse the logic and say, okay, now we're yes. reading. We look at a word in a book. If we don't decide how many sounds that word has in it, we can't partition that and decide which letters spell which sound. Mm. 
So now if you look at the word cough, let's, re let's revisit the word cough. You look at the word cough, right? Yeah. And what do, you, what do you do? Well, you have to decide it has three sounds, and then you have to decide how to spell those sounds. Well, if not, what happens? So a child could read co. Mm -hmm. Co. And then they could read thoff. <laughs> for though, in other words, if they misidentify, if, if they fail to group O-U-G-H as one spelling mm -hmm. for one sound, they could just reverse these and read cough as co and though as thoff. Yes. So unless you teach the spelling patterns, which is a system, we have a very systematic way of doing that, that, that eliminates confusion for the child. But I don't want to muddy the waters. Mm. Just, just for your, just for the audience and for you, my definition of reading is counting the sounds and learning and deciding which way to spell them. Hmm. And and reading is looking at a word and deciding literally where are the, where yeah. are the spellings for these sounds? Hmm. Is O U G H one sound or is O U a sound and G H another sound? These yeah. are the, the decisions you have to make mm -hmm. when you read and write. Now, hmm. the 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 trick here is, as we say. Uh, the devil is in the details. So how how do you make sure that when a child looks at though they don't say thaw thaw? Right. Well, mm -hmm. that that comes later. I can explain that a little bit later if time permitting. Mm -hmm. But suffice it to say, if the child doesn't know, if the child doesn't clearly know the sounds of English mm. and, and is not able to identify them, they can't even begin. They have to do that. Now, when mm. I if, if you ask a child that had maybe ear infections in toddlerhood, that's uh, a big problem. Yes. Mm. They're more accurately processing sounds. They can talk. So you think, mm. oh, they're not He can talk wrong. They don't hear discrete phonemes the way kids who didn't have ear infections do. This is a problem that goes very Right, and we hear a lot of families are, have kids who've had ear infections. And guess what? The reason we know this is a problem is because if I ask a child who had ear problems to spell, let's say, cough, they might spell it KF. Ah, they're only mm. hearing two sounds. You can't represent three sounds with two letters. So they're literally two consonants, mm. cough. Where's the ah? Uh, right away, I start asking the parent questions about their health history because mm. that tells me that they, they're not hearing ah. And they don't, they, they, they've chosen not even to represent it with any letter. Hmm. So if the kid spells cough K-O-F and they're six years old, that doesn't bother me. At least I know they hear three sounds. Right. At least there's, at least they've assigned a spelling to each sound. And then from there, I can easily teach them all of the possible spellings for those sounds and make a more educated guess about which was the best way to spell each sound. But we mm. can't even start the race unless we know the child can identify and reproduce the 40 or so phonemes of English mm. that we represent with a 26-letter alphabet, which is why English is so complicated. Right. But, but that's, in a nutshell, that's it. And, hmm. and so um, the last thought I wanted to get here is fleeting now, my aging brain here. Is um, the the final the the test that we give the kids? See, when I was mm -hmm. I'm not a big computer 
learning buff. I think in, I think in the in, in the future, you know, rich kids will have teachers and poor kids will be strapped to computers. Mm. But there's one good thing about computers that, that I couldn't get away from that it's absolutely essential for this, and that is the automation of it, exposing kids to this consistently to the correct sounds. Oh, yes. I mean, Very easily to repeat. And repeat it. So every kid in my general classroom who had problems reading would go back to the computer and they would just sit and watch uh, basically a randomized slideshow where they would see ah, dog, ah, cat. And they would learn the sounds of English starting Mm. with the vowels, which are the most difficult, and Mm. the the sounds. Now, what are the most commonly misspelled words in English? It turns out it's almost always a soft vowel. Mm. So the soft vowels that we make are the most similar in the mouth, and they're the most mm. difficult to distinguish with the ears. So oh, kids, well, that would make so sense. all kids mm-hmm. that have trouble reading and spelling have trouble with ah, eh, ah, These are the soft vowels. So mm. if you're a ventriloquist, they're the easiest because uh, eh, eh, uh, eh. You hardly have to move your mouth, but e, u, i, o. These are all very different. Oh so, yeah. So is it photosynthesis? Is it photosynthesis? Is it photosynthesis? Is it photosynthesis? These are the soft vowels mm. that confuse people. That are the sort are the most. If you if you type in most commonly misspelled English words, mm. it's always a multisyllabic oh, word with a soft vowel. So I train the kids right off the bat to uh, to accurately identify the soft vowels. So when they go to spell ah, I know that they know clearly in their mind that that's what they're trying to spell. Hmm. Sometimes they spell eh, and it's correct because they hear in their mind's ear eh. So hmm. they're spelling correctly, but they're misimagining the sound. Right. So you have to make mm-hmm. sure they can hear them and identify them and reproduce them accurately before mm-hmm. you can even start. So that's so in a nutshell, if you were in my classroom, you were a kid, they would sit at the computer, work on it, and they'd come up to me all confident and I would show them a picture of the letter A, and that would be our universal symbol for A. And I would say, What sound is that? And they say, mm-hmm. Oh, nope, sorry. <laughs> and then march back to the computer. And it took two hours. Two mm-hmm. three hours. For most kids to learn all the sounds of English with a hundred percent reliability, something you no amount of bad teaching can unteach you once they learn the sounds. It's like learning the names of forty people; they just know their names. Hmm. Once they can do that, they're off and running. Wow, just those forty things. Yeah, that's that's amazing, and it yeah, it, it takes the complexity out of, I know when I first, you know, was teaching my kids to read, it was so mind boggling to me as to how I was going to make this happen. (laughs) And this just sounds so simple. Um, It is, but you know what, it's, I'll tell you something. I don't like to tell people this because it sounds, um, I don't know how to put this. It sounds kind of pessimistic, I guess is the word, but I don't understand how anybody reads. I'll be honest with Mm. you. Because if you look at the 40 sounds of English, well, give or take, and then you look at all the possible spelling variations, it mm. seems impossible. How does how does a young child sort through all these possible combinations mm. so quickly? It just it just seems like a statistical impossibility because they're sorting through all these combinations. It doesn't 
it's kind of a miracle. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it is. I mean, it doesn't. It, it, the, the real question we should be asking is, how does anybody learn to read? Not not That's why are these kids struggling? How does anybody right. learn to read? Because it's a statistical nightmare when you think about all the spelling mm-hmm. combinations and sounds mm-hmm. of English. And the problem I showed you with cough and though, how do you sort that out, right? Mm-hmm. Well, as it turns out, it's not as difficult as you might imagine. It's more to do with what you teach in what order and whether or not it's systematically and logical for the child. Because mm-hmm. we, can, we can rationalize anything. We can say this is logical, but the proof is in the pudding. Can the kids learn to read? Right. Now, here's the definition, not my definition, but here's the definition by all the smartest people in reading science. And no two people will disagree Mm. on this. This is agreed on by everybody. Mm. The most reliable predictor of reading fluency and by extension comprehension, in other words, the Mm. the strongest predictor of how well someone reads by the common definition, can you read a book and understand it and tell me what was in the book, is the person's ability to read pseudo words. That is silly words that are in the dictionary or that are not in the dictionary rather, but conform to English spelling conventions. Mm. So so that's the gold standard. And it's a, there's a test called Dibbles. There's others, but Dibbles is probably the most well-known. And that's what we use to predict reading success. Now, if you can read these lists of silly words or pseudo words, fly, blows, uh, not blows, a uh, floke, you know, weird, weird words that a computer could read to you, but th- that are not in the dictionary, then right. you can read because you're applying the spelling code mm. to these, these, these correct spellings of words that don't exist. Right. The reason that we don't ask kids to read words like bike and Susie is because they've seen those a million times. Right. They've memorized them. They're mm-hmm. Chinese pictograph. They don't, doesn't prove anything. Hmm. So, so this is what I did to prove that I knew what I was doing. Because who am I? I'm just some second grade teacher. Who is this guy? So I, I decided, okay, I'm going to videotape my little second graders trying to read these pseudo words. And I took mm-hmm. the low readers. They were really non-readers. I mean, they could write their name, but they couldn't even, I mean, that was just a picture. They didn't even right. know how to read their own name. So I, I gave them this list and I said, read these words to me. And of course, they, they, they couldn't. Mm-hmm. And I videotaped that. I then ran them through my program. A couple of months later, I retested them, videotape, and of course, they could they could read the list fine. Mm-hmm. Now you talk about upsetting people. So I take mm-hmm. these findings to Oxford University. I meet with the top people in the psychology department that study this problem. I play them the video of these little seven and eight-year-olds read, not reading and then reading. I tell them the time interval between the first mm. and second test, and they said, this meeting is adjourned. Mm. We do not believe this is possible. They mm. just went red. They were furious. They thought I had, I had to have cheated because nobody should go from non-reader to reader in a general classroom this quickly. It's just mm-hmm. not, it's not possible. They just said, just, I'm sorry, we, we need, uh, this is, you're wasting our time. I'm not kidding. Mm-hmm. They were actually annoyed with me. They didn't even want an explanation. So, um, mm-hmm. 
So I took, and then I took these very same kids and I gave them a reading inventory. It's called a developmental reading assessment or DRE, I think. And it's just a little computer test. So they go to a computer lab, they read little short paragraphs and they answer questions about them. You can't really keep this test unless you somehow log in on the kids' behalf and do the answers for them. So the kids are in, a, I'm not even administering the test. This is on a computer with another teacher running the lab. Mm. So they went through this test. We had, a, we had a baseline test. Many of the kids got no correct answers or few correct. They were non-readers. And then after a period of time, it wasn't a, a big period. It was like three months, I think. They mm. were retested. And it's randomized. It's not even the same story. Mm. And there were huge jumps. Some kids were non, went from non-reader to third grade. And these were second graders. Mm. Okay? So I presented those findings, those scores, to Scholastic, who produced this test. And they said, well, we have no reason to doubt you because we don't think it's technically possible for you to have cheated on this exam unless you, I don't know, had a, you couldn't even have them practice the exam in the lab mm. because the story changed. They said, even though we know you didn't cheat, we could not accept this statistically. These mm. scores are so, the differentials are so great that there are, we could not include them in a normal distrib- statistical distribution. They would just be discarded as outliers. Now, I mean, these are the publishers of the test. Hmm. <laughs> crazy yeah so, but you're upsetting the norm and people don't like that when when they they have in their minds this is the amount of time it should take for a student to read this is the process they should go through and it shouldn't be this simple well do you remember no child left behind all this fanfare no child left behind mm. well there was a reading portion of that called reading first oh. and that legislation was written by a gentleman named bob sweet he's deceased now but Bob Sweet, Robert J. Sweet, was the founder of the National Right to Read Foundation. And they got him, and they said, we want you to tell us what scientific-based reading is, and, and we want to put it in legislation. We want mm-hmm. to discourage schools from teaching reading inefficiently and ineffectively. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he wrote the legislation, and it's, I mean, I think it's maybe the law expired, but it, he was the brains behind reading first. And that was a $6 billion program with a B. That was a big program. He wrote it. I sent Bob my scores, and he he was just flabbergasted. And he believed me because he knew all the top science people in reading. He read everything there ever was to read about. And it actually made sense to him. He didn't dismiss it outright because he Mm. could see the difference between what I was doing and what traditional phonics was doing. Traditional phonics works and has worked for you know, more than a hundred years, mm. but in a general classroom with other things going on, um, the labor intensity of that was not, it wasn't practical. Mm. I mean, I could, mm-hmm. I could pull any kid aside and teach them the old fashioned way. Uh, but it's, it's, un, it turns out it's unnecessarily time consuming and, and laborsome both for the adult and the child. Hmm. And so um, yeah. I just started. I did. It, I did it my way, as uh, Frank Sinatra used to sing. I taught the sounds. <laughs> I taught them the possible spellings for each sound in a systematic way. Mm-hmm. But I started with very precise ear training and worked from there. I didn't assume they knew all the sounds just because they could talk. Right. And I and and, and that's sort of that was the jumping off point. Hmm. So. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, we have a lot of families that um, that have kids with auditory processing issues. And I know you talked a little bit about music. Is is music and some other techniques helpful in helping a child who has that auditory processing issue? Without a doubt. I mean, if they're if they're especially if they're playing an instrument that requires them to tune it. In other words, the mm-hmm. piano you put mm-hmm. Right. But if you're singing or playing the violin or anything that requires you to tune it, um, it, it can do nothing but good for you. Hmm. I would imagine that singing helps a lot too, because obviously you have to produce the sounds. Right. And you have yeah. to do it in, in time. That is to say, you can't take forever to produce mm-hmm. the sound. It has to be on a beat. So all these things speed up cognition, hmm. but they also. Um, wire the brain for learning sounds. And I would, I would mm. predict that anybody that learns a musical instrument is not only more likely to be a better reader, but they're probably more likely to acquire a second or third language more easily also. Uh-huh. So, so I'm told that I have a good accent. Like in Portugal, it gets me in trouble because even though I speak Portuguese, my vocabulary isn't quite what it should be. I mean, I lived here, you know, I lived in Portugal over 20 years ago. I spent mm. the last 20 years in the United Kingdom in England. Okay. And then I moved back to Portugal. And so I'll start talking to someone and they'll think I'm natives or near native because they, I sound Portuguese. And then they'll mm. just start talking very fast and uh, hang on. <laughs> right. So... So, but but I do sound. There's certain words that I'm told that only I can that I can pronounce like a native, and that typical American or Canadian cat can't pronounce. So hmm. I attribute that to the musical training. Really. Oh yeah, yeah. So what are some other things that families can do to really help with that um, phonological awareness with students that really struggle in that area? Well, I think some of it's natural. Like we talk about baby talk, you know, mothers slowing down and even mouthing the words, hmm. you know, these masks aren't helping. I'm here to tell you, a math, there's some studies that have come out recently that are very uh, discouraging about really? child development because you have certain windows of, of development that just can't be, you can't unscramble the egg. You can't go back and redo that. So you have, you know, young kids in kindergarten, first, second grade, they're looking at their teacher. The teacher is talking. Hmm. If they're not saying that, they're, they're not connecting the, they're not lip reading they're not connecting the shape of the mouth with the sounds that come out hmm. you, you're modeling how you make sounds when right. i taught i exaggerated my speech you know mm-hmm. i would say things like i'm i'm going to uh do many things today i'm going to take roll i am going to find out who wants hot lunch et cetera you know uh-huh. and i would exaggerate these right. uh, pronunciations so they would they would know and i just did that instinctively and i think mothers mm. do that with sort of with baby talk with kids you can play games with them you could say you know frog how many sounds are in the word frog or august you can literally make it a game i played oh, yeah. games with my son i said say the word frog backwards what do you mean back backwards <laughs> Literally, you could do that mm-hmm. when he was three years old. So he was yeah. already practicing, and he didn't know it. I mean, he didn't know it was mm-hmm. a lesson. He just 
Right. It's kind of like a little challenge, and kids love that. <laughs> this word, but take out the last sound. Frog. Mm. Right? Say frog without the first sound. Frog. I mean, you could spend an hour on frog. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a question of identifying sounds, isolating them. We call that segmenting, where you spread it out and say each sound, blending, putting them together, deleting. Mm-hmm. You can even ask them to do substitutions, right? Say the word frog with a t at the beginning. I'm sorry. Say the word frog and replace the first sound with t. Trog. I mean, mm-hmm. and it's, just, it's really just a question of, of them making them aware the words are built up of little Legos we call phonemes. Mm-hmm. They can be moved around, they can be rearranged, but those are the smallest constituents of speech. And, you know, the Phoenicians who invented writing, we say phonetic because it's the Phoenicians. Somebody mm-hmm. really smart a long time ago said, hey, we have these sounds coming out of our mouths and, you know, we have this massive shipping empire. How are we going to keep track of all these goods and grain and all this? I mean, the beginning of accounting and literally the beginning of civilization, I would argue, was... The, the moment that some spark went off in some Phoenician's head and said, hey, we make these sounds, let's write them down. And we all speak the same, so we should all be able to decode this stuff and keep track of everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's probably the invention, in quotes, that defines the human race, right? The, or mm-hmm. civilization. The idea that we make sounds, we can encode that into writing, and then we can keep track of things. Mm-hmm. Chinese are different. Chinese is, uh, these are pictures of things that some of them are symbolic, some do represent sounds. Mm-hmm. But I always tell people, China is a, Chinese is a pictographic language. Let's pick Mandarin. Mm-hmm. Mandarin, everyone in China can read the same newspaper because everyone in China interprets the same symbols the same way. So in China, whatever this is, let's say is house. So everybody that looks at the paper knows that means house. However, mm-hmm. they all speak differently. So when Mr. So-and-so from this part of China says house and Mr. So-and-so from that part of China says house, they don't say the same sound, so they can't Hmm. talk to each other. They all read the same newspaper. Wow. That's not, you know, it's apples and oranges. It's not Mm -hmm. English. It's a phonographic or graphophonemic language. It is coded Mm -hmm. speech. And the sooner kids learn the sounds of their native tongue, the sooner you can start teaching them how to spell those sounds and how to mm-hmm. recognize spellings when they read. So they're kind of reverse processes of each other. Right. Yeah. It all starts with that. It all starts with phonemic discrimination, then manipulation. Remember, mm-hmm. there's no point in manipulating the Legos if you don't know, A, how many Legos you have, and mm-hmm. B, what order you can put them in. So you have to count the Legos. We have three here. How can you arrange them? So, mm-hmm. you, you, you know, these are all prerequisites. Identify the sound, then manipulate the sound, then mm-hmm. recognize the sound as a spelling and so on. So this hard hierarchical. You can't just dive in and say, spell this. Well, I don't know how many sounds are in the word. Oh, I didn't teach you the sounds. I'm sorry. Mm. Right? right. <laughs> so you start to see how it's just like, run. I'm two weeks old. I don't even know how to crawl. Right? It, it, these are just developmental stages that are, yeah. Part of an unnatural process. You know, English okay. writing was an invention. Writing is not something you come out of the womb doing, and it's something you don't naturally acquire by accident just by 
Right. You know, you're running through the jungle. You have somebody has to teach you how to write mm-hmm. and read. And this is an unnatural process. Reading is the slowing down of speech, mm-hmm. and writing is the encoding of that slowing down. You have to hear the sounds to write them, and you have to identify them to read them. And it's a right. it's a process of stretching it out so you can really hear it. Natural mm-hmm. speech. People talk. They don't know. They don't hear. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't learn to talk if if I said at right book box you know kitty litter you know you, mm-hmm. you could never give instructions that slowly kids wouldn't process the information speech has to sound natural mm. so so that's why you talk to kids like you've always talked to kids but you don't teach kids to read in the same way they learn to acquire speech it's just not the same thing at all right yeah so you had talked um previously a little bit about tongue twisters. Is there something that parents can do um, in using tongue twisters to help with their children that struggle in this area? Yes, because again, when you, when you, let me put it to you this way. If you didn't, if you didn't have access to my method and you just wanted to work with your kid, Mm -hmm. you could never do any harm by working with them using tongue twisters. And that's Mm -hmm. why they're Part of traditional lore, you know, tongue twisters. Yeah, I think we've lost that, though. Yes, yes, definitely. Not just entertainment. Tongue twisters provide a a valuable uh, sort of hidden uh, benefit. The ear training is built into it. So Mm. when you say, as I said earlier, the mouth has a common reference. So Mm -hmm. every every word starts with that. Peter Piper. Already, the kid is hearing e and i. Following, so it's always the same interval, like mm-hmm. like with the musical analogy with ear training. So, p, pi, pi. Mm-hmm. You can even do abbreviated tongue twisters where you say p, pi, pi, pa. Oh, yeah, just first sound. And so they they hear them, and then once they they hear them, then oh. That's just, it's, it, I know it's hard to believe, but that's so much easier than Peter Cyber Ficht a Sack. Mm. <laughs> it's much harder. So P Pi Pack. Peter Piper picked a pack. P Pi And then again, if you're not wearing a mask, <laughs> the child will see P Pi E I E I. They'll see it. They'll see right. the transition. Your mouth is in a different shape, so they can imitate it. Yeah. And it, it sounds silly, and it sounds, uh, you know, it sounds contrived, but it's not. They need that because, again, reading and writing are not natural. They're a technology. Hmm. The only way to want to walk that technology is to slow it down and make it transparent, right? Mm-hmm. You know, before x-rays were invented, you know, my, you know, people like Leonardo had to cut people open to see what was inside. They didn't know. <laughs> right. right. Well, we, we need to we need to do an autopsy on English. We need to cut it open and mm. see what these things are made of. It's really like a magnification. Mm. And these little drills help with that. They they help tune the ear. They right. help they help train the eye to see because when children see the mouth pee pie, they copy that. That's how right. they that's how they learn to talk from baby talk with mom. And that's when mommy goes down. Yes. Right? Yes. Baby talking. Uh-huh. Mommy doesn't go to the office and talk 
to her boss the way she talks to her, her baby, right? So mm-hmm. there's we already know that the baby can't handle that. I'm going to need this by Monday morning on my desk. We don't do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? We but hope we, we don't. <laughs> I mean, hopefully you're doing that instinctively, right? You're not, you don't have such poor maternal instincts that you're talking to your kid like you're like you would, a, you know, an auction. But mm-hmm. um, that, that's right. a good example of how some of that's already built in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know you shared with me in uh, like our planning of this conversation, something about being able to mix music with tongue twisters too. Can you talk a little yes, bit about I, that? I mean, you, 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 you could, you could sing, you could sing. See, here's the thing about tongue twisters. I have to back up a little bit. Um, It's really hard to talk. Of, it's hard to talk about the sounds without talking about their relationship to the spelling code because one, it's sort of how do I put this? If you don't, mm, obviously, obviously the goal here is to learn to read and write. I mean, mm-hmm. ultimately, we want to learn to read and write. So you can spend the rest of eternity playing with sounds. That's only. Uh, this goes by very quickly, by the way. I don't want to give folks the impression that they spend forever mm. on sound. Remember, it's a couple of hours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, all, all a second grader really needs is to be strapped to a chair facing a computer and to hear, see the, spe- you know, ah, ah, eh, ah, eh, and then come back and be checked by me. Now, mm. unless I'm hearing the sounds, which I can assure you I'm not, that child is guaranteed to pass that level of that prerequisite that is necessary for mm. reading. So I don't want to give the idea to folks that unless you, you know, you did tongue twisters with your toddler right. up until the point they start school, then they're, they're, they're doomed. That's not true. Mm. I've never had a student that I could not teach all the sounds of English in a few hours. Some mm. took a little longer mm. than some had ear infections and other problems. But no kid ever escaped my grasp. <laughs> that, that, you know, no kid ever got out of second grade. Well, that's not great hope for our parents, too. Especially on that. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. They're all learning to distinguish those subtle but very distinct the vowel sounds, most mm-hmm. importantly, the vowel sounds of the hardest. And, I mean, I had a kid, he was a British kid, and he had a very thick British accent. <laughs> and he, he actually said the word tandy for candy. Mm-hmm. That's how he said candy. Mr. Hmm. Boyd, could I have some tandy? Hmm. He said tandy. And, and he wrote candy on a spelling test. And I, get, I marked it as correct. Because hmm. he was literally writing what he says. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, but I'm by, by backing up. Um, the reason I say I have to back up is because on the spelling code issue, um, so, so imagine kids learn their sounds. Okay, so you got mm-hmm. your typical six, seven, eight-year-old. They've, they've learned their sounds. Now what? Right. Well, you show them, and this is on the website. Folks really have to see my video because I do go mm-hmm. systematically through. It's about a half an hour, but it's the best half hour you'll ever spend because I show <laughs> the progression of what is taught when and why. Now, mm. uh, but I don't, don't want to, you know, I don't want to do that here. That's not really the purpose of this. So, but suffice it to say that once they learn the sounds, then they can immediately dive into manipulating those sounds because mm. they learn one and only one symbol for each sound. 
That's that's the magic right. of this method. Every time they see the letter A, it's A. It can't be anything else but A. Every mm. time they see the letter S, it's S. Every time they see the letter K, it's K. So for them, that's just a picture of that sound. Mm. It also happens to be a spelling, but we use that as a universal phonetic alphabet, basically. Got it. So when yep. the Pope gives the speech, you know, and whatever in Chinese, you know, the Pope, the Popes typically speak more than one language. They tend to be well-educated and, you know, mm. you hear about Pope this and Pope that. They spoke five languages and six languages. I can assure you there's no Pope that ever spoke 140 languages. Mm. But they all these speeches in all these obscure languages. Well, how is this possible? Well, they have a phonetic alphabet. They, it's just mm. like Morse code. They know, they have it superimposed, and they just read the sounds. So oh. anybody can learn to master, you know, couple dozen sounds mm-hmm. and, and know what you know you see this picture and you make this sound so what yeah. i do with the kids at the beginning stages is they literally build words and they can be real words or they can be nonsense words it doesn't matter, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. Right. what matters is can you glue these together mm-hmm. and make words can you also see them and read it or write it right. it works in both directions and that's why they got a, a, a perfect or near perfect score on the pseudo reading test after just a couple of months. And that's why they nearly called security on me at Oxford University because I couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. They literally couldn't believe that young kids could master the, the machinery that it takes to read pseudo words, which, by the way, again, without exception, it's the gold standard among reading researchers. About hmm. you ask them, if you ask anybody that studies reading, you'll say, What's the most, what is the strongest predictor of, of reading success? And they will always tell you it's pseudo word mastery. Can mm-hmm. they read silly words? Just like, what's the biggest predictor of diabetes? Obesity. And there's other things that contribute to it. But if you're really big, you're way, way, way more likely to get diabetes than not. So mm-hmm. it's just like, it's, it's, so, it's such an obvious connection that it really is kind of the definition of reading. So if you were to ask me, what's reading? I would say the ability to read pseudo words. Mm. How can we teach a kid to read pseudo words? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) You know, I did it for eight years, and I told everybody that would listen. The parents loved it because, you know, they were off the hook. Third grade Mm. teacher loved it because all all of my students went to them ready to hit the road ground running. Right, yes. Here's the sad statistic. If you're not reading at grade level by the end of third grade, have a one in five chance of reading at grade level at the end of ninth grade mm. well, because it's not taught in the schools once once they get through that certain grade level there you can go yes. to reading intervention but really they they're trying to push those kids through that curriculum it's like the prenatal yeah. vitamins after the kid's born if you're not reading at third grade see this is what happens and this is so sad parents think their kid can read because they're they think they can read, and they go to the first mm. grade and the second grade. Then they hit third grade, and then they hit fourth grade. And suddenly, they're not just reading cute stories. They're reading instructions, like right. how to do an experiment, or, or, or they're reading history, and they have to talk about why. So they have to interpret. The, and suddenly, oh, wait a minute, mm. we lie. They can't read mm, because they can't mm-hmm. do what reading is supposed to do for right. You, right. They were just kind of skimming by before. And then the parents are yeah. curious. So, well, how, how mm. could this be? How could my kid have been untaught? The answer was they never learned to read. 
Right. They just sort of gave you the illusion of that. And that's really the mm. sad commentary on much of public education is we can we can sort of do kind of a, almost a magic act and give your, the parents a sense that the child can read. But I would always say to them, give them a list of pseudo words. Mm. See if they can read flyb and flues and cloth. If they can't, then something's really wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, and the, the beauty of homeschooling is we can still work on that. <laughs> we don't have any set time when our child has to um, has to, to master. I mean, no. they, they, and they the can way, get can, it. And, and I can teach yep. an adult to read it just as quickly as a child. It's nothing special about kids. I'm just I'm referencing kids because that was my Right. Experience. And yeah, that but makes total nothing. sense, though, in a, a structured learning environment that they're just moved on every year. And yes, yes. But yeah. an adult, you know, an adult who, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, didn't learn to read, whether it was ear problems or just bad teaching, whatever, you show me an adult who can't read, and I can teach them to read in six contact hours. Because they have the vocabulary too, you know. They're, they're right. Exactly. So they mm-hmm. learn the sounds. They learn. They and they use the spelling code chart, and they can read independently. And yeah. just a few contact hours. I mean, imagine the human misery. You know, uh, mm. the, I, I am. I am. It's not just me that says this. People smarter than I have said this. That illiteracy costs America more in terms of human misery and money. When the wars on poverty, drugs, crime, and terrorism combined, there is no bigger problem hmm. and no bigger drag on the U.S. economy and social cohesion than poor literacy. It's hmm. it's the it's the elephant in the living room. It, it ruins everything. It predicts right. how many jails you're going to need. They actually look hmm. at regional reading scores to predict jail space, new construction. Wow. They, it predicts everything from your likelihood of dying young to divorcing to, mm. you know, to taking an overdose because you misread your prescription. I mean, mm. There's no problem in modern life that isn't made infinitely worse and more complicated by poor reading. Yeah, yeah. That's so good to remember. Um, Kathy said, this is fascinating. I'll be sharing with parents. And she did ask before your website, but I, I did put it up. Um, but I would love for you to close out our time talking a little bit about spellcode.info. If you're listening to the podcast, that's um, Timothy's website. But what can parents find there as far as resources and then the services that you offer? Well, you know, as I say, I keep going back to the introductory video. It provides, you know, it's 30 minutes. You'll never get back, but you'll never regret it because mm-hmm. it explains logically the progression from learning the sounds all the way up through and the rationale for it. And then and then you see, oh, you're kidding. How could this be this simple? You mean I just have to the kid just has to learn these sounds and then and then and then learn this spelling process by virtue of that? Yeah, it's that it's it's so mm-hmm. stupid. Yeah, I remember when we first met and I thought this is this is amazing. <laughs> I have to say two things. There were you know the, the road to hell is not just paved with good intentions, but it's paved with good intentions fueled by untested assumptions, right? Mm-hmm. And there are two That's untested good. assumptions that were made in in in, in psychology, I'll call it. A kind of single-handedly um, handicapped America. One was World War One. They decided that we need to quickly divide officers from the enlisted men, and how are we going to do that? Well, some genius said, "Well, let's just go on reading fluency." So they lit for a hundred years. The definition of an intelligent person was someone who read fluently. I kid you not. 
Hmm. So 100 years of psychology wasted on this assumption. It turns out that intelligence and reading fluency are, are not correlated at all. Hmm. Eye color is, is probably more relevant. They, they have no relationship to each other. So you can be a genius and a terrible reader or quite a fluent reader and be an idiot. There's, mm. there's no relationship to them. So that, that, that just set us back 100 years. Now, mm. fast forward, we do traditional phonics does sort of admit that we have to learn the sounds and we have to learn the spellings for those sounds. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. The, the, the grave, untested assumption they made in traditional phonics was to assume that kids can't handle the full spectrum of the spelling code. That is to say, they can only handle certain spellings initially for certain for the sounds so if they simplify it. Oh. so you end up with what we call controlled text so you read mm-hmm. books where the sound o might have only one or two spellings right even though o might have great you know possible spellings in english so they limit that now here's the interesting part what happens when you say to johnny uh, johnny we lied to you there really aren't two spellings for o there's another one and you add that now Johnny has to reorganize his whole time. At the point he's starting to feel good about that third spelling of the O sound, you introduce a fourth. Hmm. And it turns out that's terribly inex- that's terribly expensive. It's costly. It hmm. causes confusion and unnecessary drag. It's a it, it's an unnecessary cognitive load, as we would say in in, in social hmm. science research. So what I say is, no, we don't we can't limit kids. First of all, I'm using tongue twisters, which means you can't write a sensical tongue twister without the full lexicon of English at your disposal. Right? Mm. You can't write Penelope, pit stops, pink parasol, perforated, profusely, pending Paulina's uh, prenuptial agreement or whatever. Mm-hmm. So you can't, you cannot write a tongue twister without pulling words from everywhere. Mm. Well, that includes mm. all spellings. Does that make sense? So literally every possible spelling combination when they see a tongue twister. Well, how do we overcome that? How do I not overwhelm the child? Well, I'll tell you, I put the Pope's phonetic alphabet above. So now the kids, now we'll go back to the computer. The letter A is A. The letter O is all. So every time they that sound appears in a word, the phonetic spelling appears above. Well, they, they have dictionary spellings below, so they see the mm-hmm. spelling patterns, but they have a reading reflex, meaning they can't make right. a mistake because they know the letter O is always the aw sound. So they literally mm-hmm. cannot mispronounce ever. Now, mm-hmm. imagine, now, now, here's the miracle of that. The miracle is that initially I thought, well, how am I going to pull these training wheels off? These kids are going to be confused. They're going to mm-hmm. think this is two spellings. It turns out that it doesn't bother them at all. They know really? the top thing is just a picture of a sound. It doesn't mm-hmm. bother them at all. And the bottom is the real dictionary spelling. And so those training wheels come out very quickly. Hmm. They only use that for a short time. Then you pull them off. Wow. And because they're exposed to all possible English spellings, when they finally see a word in a book without training wheels, they automatically parse it into the, the sounds. Oh. So, so they're able huh. to decide... That cough is a two-sound word, right? Mm-hmm. And that, and that, um, and that though, I mean, I'm sorry, though is a two-sound word and cough is a three-sound word. So they're able to do this hmm. when they can talk to read with the cheat above, with the, with the right. phonetic spelling above. So hmm. that's the miracle of it. And that was the, uh, that was the hypothesis that I had to test. And it turns out the training wheels are the, are the key to everything because it unlocks the full spectrum of English spelling variations 
mm-hmm. without, without without adding any additional burden to the child because they, they literally oh that's Billy that's Susie you know they know they know the names of forty kids well now they know the names of forty sounds right it's yeah. never hesitation they can see the sounds they can glue them together and they can speak just like a computer would decode text and read to a blind person it's literally that's the amazing. same program. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us, Timothy. This hour has gone by super fast, but you've had so much good information to share. And I, I do encourage our listeners to check out Timothy's website. It's spellcode.info. And um, he'll have some information there. He also shared some links with me of um, some of the things he talked about, and I'll put those in the YouTube description. So you can you can click on those links and there'll be a link to his website there, too. Um and, and thank you for partnering with, with us at um, Sped Homeschool too, Timothy. And um, he's on our reading page. So if um, you're looking for, for just reading curriculum, you can find spell code there as well. Um, so, yeah, thank you for taking time and, and sharing with us and just your passion for, um, for helping kids be more literate. I mean, all of us, really. <laughs> yeah, Appreciate thank it. you. I enjoy it very much. Yeah, yeah. And this broadcast was sponsored by viewers like you. If you want to make a tax-deductible donation to SPED Homeschool, we are our 501c3 nonprofit. Um, You can just visit our website at spedhomeschool.com, and we appreciate that. That's what keeps us going. Um, Next week, actually, we're not doing a broadcast, but we are doing one Thursday night to make up for that. Um, And so Thursday evening at 630 Central, we are going to be talking about everyday activities again, um, but this time on how to determine therapy goals for your child as um, we wrap up this month of um, of kind of easier way to do things and and diving into um, some some ways that you can teach on the go. And um, that's kind of what our, our goal is for, for next month as we focus on that. But um, so I hope you, you can join me for that special time on Thursday night. And um, we'll just keep the empowering conversation going. So, um, so thanks again, Timothy. And thank you all of you for joining us again on Empowering Homeschool Conversations. This has been a blast. And um, we'll see you next time. (laughs) Bye, everybody. If you're hearing this right now, you're probably like, who the heck is this and why are they playing during my favorite podcast? And I get it. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I do want to introduce myself. My name is Trevor Tyson, and I'm the host of Trevor Talks, where we talk to real people about real topics and real stories. I just want to invite you, if you love podcasts, if you love music, if you love books and love hearing from the people who create it, come check us out at Trevor Talks. Simply go to Google or Life Audio, type in Trevor Talks, and it'll pop on up. Hope you have a great day. 